Welcome to the Dermatology Interest Group Association podcast, or DIGA podcast, where we talk about everything from how to become a stellar dermatology applicant to interesting topics in dermatology. From research advice to interviewing tips, you will be prepared to follow the path to become a world-class dermatologist. Welcome to another episode of the DIGA podcast. This is your host, Mark Conley, and today we have with us Dr. Aaron Seacrest. Dr. Seacrest is practicing international dermatology in the country of New Zealand. He shares with us how he was able to get this opportunity and what it's like to practice there. He also shares with us his website, which is uh, very useful for skin tips and tricks of how to manage your skincare and also just to help family members as well. So take a look at that. Uh, we'll include it in the show notes as well, and it's also in the podcast itself. So with that, we'll see you on the skin side. All right. Welcome to another episode of the DIGA podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Aaron Seacrest, for joining us. I I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, I was privileged to work with Dr. Seacrest in the past, and so um, it's great to reconnect. Do you mind introducing yourself, Dr. Seacrest? Sure. My name's Aaron Seacrest. I um, am formerly recently one of the vice chairs at the University of Utah, and I've currently stepped away. I'm doing a sabbatical right now working as a public dermatologist in Christchurch, New Zealand for their public health system. And uh, the the needs in New Zealand are so desperate that I'm essentially the only dermatologist for the South Island of New Zealand for the public system. So it, it's been an eye-opening experience just being down here and seeing how dermatology is practiced differently in another part of the world. Um, I went to medical school at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I very much wanted to do research and so I went to the University of Pittsburgh as an MD-PhD student. Uh, before I started my, my, my medical school training, I worked for six months in a drug discovery lab. And I thought it would be amazing because I was looking for new medicines for HIV. And it was the most boring six months of my life. <laughs> and so I got very disillusioned. I thought I didn't want to do research anymore. And right before medical school started, we had a student retreat for all the MD-PhD students and the chair of epidemiology came over and she said, if you like doing research, but you also like human beings, epidemiology is the place to be. And so she convinced me that I did like doing more clinical and patient-oriented research rather than bench work. And so I switched to doing a PhD in epidemiology there at the University of Pittsburgh. And during my PhD in Pittsburgh, they require you to do a half day a week clinical rotation during the PhD to kind of keep your feet wet for clinical care. And I asked one of the more senior MD, PhD students what, what I should do that in. And she said, well, our school is terrible at teaching dermatology, and so you should maybe experience dermatology. And so mm. instead of doing a 20-week rotation, like one semester in dermatology, I loved it so much that for the next three years of my PhD, I did a half day a week in dermatology. 
and it was just the 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 best time of my PhD was spending time in the in the clinic with my dermatology colleagues and seeing patients. So I just fell in love with it there. That's fascinating. So I finished. I finished school at the University of Pittsburgh. I mm-hmm. decided that I wanted to do uh, peds dermatology, pediatric dermatology. So I went to Cincinnati Children's and did a year of pediatrics there for my intern year before going to the University of Utah for residency. And um, during my residency, I tried to explain to my wife why I wanted to do pediatric dermatology, but she did not understand why I would do an extra year of training to make less money. So she <laughs> did not approve of me doing any extra training. And so I essentially became a general dermatologist with a sort of preference for seeing kids as well. And so about a third of my patients uh, in Utah were under 18. So I got to keep my foot in the door with pediatrics without having to do the former fellowship. Oh man, that's, I, I didn't know that. I, I remember working with you and you had a ton of kids, but I didn't know that that's how you ended up there. So that's, that's fascinating. <laughs> oh, it's not the kids that made me like pediatrics. It's just pediatric. I, I like pediatrics for the reason that they are usually healthy human beings that have something wrong with them. And I like that a whole lot better than the older patients who have 30 things wrong with them and they have a skin condition. And so I just found that they were far harder to treat. I I like the simplicity and the, it just was more enjoyable to, to be able to fix a kid rather than to just stabilize an adult. Yeah. No, kids are great that way. So resilient. Um, and I know not too long ago, you did a master's of business administration, uh, at, at the university of Utah. And, um, can you just tell listeners like a little bit about why you pursued that and how that has shaped your career? Oh, yes. So, um, that came about because I've always been fascinated with business. I did, I did a business minor in my undergraduate training and I've always loved the business side of things. Uh, when I got into medicine, working as a dermatologist, I quickly realized that medicine in the United States is run by business people, not by doctors. Mm-hmm. And so what I kept running up against was I would pitch an idea that was going to really help patients and Often those ideas would get shot down by um, the business people making the decisions. And it wasn't until a few years later that I realized that what was going on in their minds was, is it going to make money for us or are we going to lose money on this? And so clinical care is very important as long as that clinical care makes money in the United States. If it's good for the patient, but does not make money, then it does not get resources put to it. That's why we have a healthcare uh, or a mental health crisis. It's why 
we don't treat diabetes preventatively. We just give people meds so that they don't have to change any of the terrible stuff they're eating. They just take more medication <laughs> so that they can eat what they want. Our, our system just is not incentivized to make people better. And I was mm-hmm. getting frustrated by that. And so I went and did a MBA to try to learn the business speak. And um, it was very nice in the sense that I was able to um, then pitch my ideas in a business manner to the business people. So instead of telling them how much it's going to help patients, I would talk to them about what type of financial benefits would come from that and my suggestions would start getting more traction because I was speaking how how they thought in their mind. Um, so I felt that that was very useful. And then the problem with that is I started seeing sort of the inner workings of how healthcare works because mm-hmm. I, I started taking on more roles on the business side of things both in the, in our department at the university, as well as just seeing a lot more behind the scenes. And the problem with seeing that is you, it's kind of like removing the curtain in the Wizard of Oz. You kind of see how, how things actually work. And it was very disappointing how money-driven everything is in the United States with healthcare. And that got me thinking, I need to see what other health systems are like. I've read about all sorts of other health systems in the world to see how we can improve our U.S. health system. Uh, And I decided I needed to take a leap and actually work in one of those national health systems to see if they were as evil as they're portrayed in the United States, as socialist regimes that no one gets any health care and <laughs> you have to wait endlessly for surgeries. I I mean, I've, I've grown up in the U.S., so I've heard how horrible socialist medicine is mm-hmm. uh, ever since I've been a kid. And so I wanted to see it firsthand. And so I've been here in New Zealand for about a year working as the public dermatologist on the South Island. And it's been amazing an eye-opening and also a little bit um, disappointing to see how many flaws there are in every healthcare system, just in completely different ways. That's so, so fascinating. So you're the only dermatologist on this island that you're currently at. So there are 80 dermatologists in New Zealand for the Mm -hmm. entire country of about 5 million people. Uh, they've done numbers and they estimate that there should be about 400 dermatologists for how many people there are, but there's just not enough dermatologists in general. Only 18 of those 80 are in the public health system. The rest are private dermatologists. And so Hmm. all of the other 17 public dermatologists are up on the North Island in Auckland or in Hamilton is where they're primarily based. And then I'm just the only one on the South Island, which is fun in so many ways, but also very frustrating in many ways, because there's not enough of me to cover 600,000 people. So 
Wow. That's incredible. So many patients to see. And I mean, I'm imagining that most people are kind of using that public health system because it is a public, um, you know, I, I don't know what the right way to call it is, but like a publicly funded oh, well, they're organization. So, so they pay taxes and, and out of their taxes comes the public health system. So there is no, one of the lovely things about giving healthcare in New Zealand is I never once have a discussion about costs of anything. I don't oh, talk yeah. about the costs of procedures. I don't talk the costs about uh, the doctor's visit or the medications I'm prescribing. It's either a funded thing or it's not funded. And so they don't have all of the medicines that we have in the US, but they have enough of them. And so I just stick with the medicines that we have and mm -hmm. patients don't go bankrupt or go broke here. That's not, it's not part of healthcare here is how am I going to pay for this? Because it's all covered in the public system. So what I find is that a lot of people have private insurance here so that they can go see private dermatologists. Um, but then there's the inequities that we have everywhere in the world. So the poor patients can't afford private insurance and they can't afford to see a private dermatologist. So they just have to wait in the public system and hope that they can get seen. So I imagine that, um, you know, your, your, the breadth of your work has probably increased greatly because, um, I mean, I know there's definitely different pathologies in, in Utah, but, um, I'm sure like, can you just tell us a little bit about like the breadth of what you're seeing there is like complex medical dermatology to psoriasis to, is it just kind of all of the above? So the cool thing about being the only dermatologist is that you have to see everything there. I can't say, oh, we have someone who specializes in psoriasis, go see them. Or I mm. don't do blister blistering disease very well. So go see so-and-so it's just me. And so I love that because I actually am doing real dermatology like I did in residency when you get out into the into the the system in the US you do a whole lot of skin checks a whole lot of acne and warts and eczema and you don't see very many interesting patients from a medical point of view um but here it is just complex or severe disease because the primary care docs do all of the acne in this country. They mm -hmm. do Accutane or Isotretinoin themselves. So I think I only have two acne patients and they're the super complex or severe patients. It's, it's just all sorts of very interesting, fun dermatology. So I'm trying to set up a an away rotation for, for residents from the U.S. to come over because they get amazing complex dermatology, mm. complex medical derm exposure, but then they get all their evenings and weekends off to be in New Zealand and explore the most beautiful country in the world. Yeah. I mean, that sounds incredible. And if, if I remember correctly, <laughs> New Zealand's like the top, it's like New Zealand and Australia are the most high prevalence of melanoma in the world. That's why they have like the derm net. They are. 
Yes. Okay. So, so it's Dermnet, if you haven't found it, Dermnet was created by New Zealand dermatologists, and it is an amazing resource. And I've I've met all the creators and the contributors. My residents here, that's one of the things that they do to try to get into residency in dermatology here is they contribute pages to um, Dermnet. Mm -hmm. um, they have tremendous skin cancer here, uh, so much more than I even saw in Utah. And Utah was the highest rates in the U.S. Right. And the main the main reason for that is that um, they for the the 1980s 1990s they did not have an ozone covering New Zealand and Australia when we had the the aerosolized hairsprays with the chlorofluorocarbons they destroyed the ozone layer and where it destroyed it the most was over New Zealand and Australia so they essentially had zero ozone until those were banned and so they got 20 or 30 years of just terrible uv exposure I never knew that that was the reason why that's so fascinating. Um, yeah. but, but horrible at the same time. Um, and, and so, um, I guess, how did you, if it's appropriate to ask, how did you get into this opportunity? Like, how did you get in touch? How did you end up? Oh, in so, so my my wife and I really decided that we needed a change both for our family. Uh, we, we had our oldest son uh, who was an adult and leaving the house. And so we wanted a, a change for our family because as one of the vice chairs, I was working way too hard as a dermatologist. I, I should not have been working 88 plus hours a week. And that's what I was putting in. And so I wasn't spending time at home. I wasn't seeing the family like I wanted to. So we wanted a big change for that reason. And I wanted to see a national healthcare system in action. So I did a lot of research. Canada is an option, but Canada is colder than Utah. So we weren't super excited about that. <laughs> Australia is an option, but Australia is actually harder than New Zealand for a U.S. doctor to come over and try getting licensed. Um, the UK has more restrictions as well, and we weren't so adventurous that we wanted to learn a new language. So it kind of ended up becoming New Zealand, and anyone I'd ever talked to who'd been to New Zealand or uh, served a church mission or lived in New Zealand, they all spoke glowingly about how wonderful it was. So it became a no-brainer, and all I had to do was try finding a job here. And since there aren't enough dermatologists, that's not a problem. There's always postings for, for jobs here. In fact, my office here in Christchurch, we have funding for three more dermatologists, and we just don't have dermatologists to fill those spots. So, wow. So theoretically, the job part was the easy part. <laughs> okay. Okay. So theoretically, for a student who has aspirations for dermatology. And specifically international dermatology, there's there's lots of opportunity there. Well, what I'm trying to do, I, that's a caveat. So our training is very different than New Zealand's training. Mm -hmm. And they look at how how we were trained differently. We we have a shorter training than they do. They essentially make everyone become a 
high quality internal medicine doctor before they can start derm. And so they, they allowed the fact that I'd been out for several years from my residency to make up for the fact that I wasn't a general medicine doctor before I became a dermatology resident. Um, what I'm trying to do, and it's going to be a slow process, is try to convince them that I don't, I don't know if you've seen it, but there are, there's an increasing number of positions for complex medical derm fellowships mm -hmm. at certain residency programs. It's not a recognized fellowship by the American Board of Dermatology, like MOES or pediatrics or dermatopathology. Um, but it's something where people want to stay in academic medicine. They want to do more complicated dermatology. And I'm trying to convince uh, my colleagues here that those applicants that want to do complex medical derm tend to be some of the best and the brightest in the country. So it's okay that they did not get all of their general medicine training. We should maybe allow them to come over and work and do a fellowship here. Mm. And if they like it, then they can say, hey, I'll just stay here and do it because this is quite beautiful and fun. Wow. But that's yeah. a process. Yeah, no. I'm still not idea. licensed. I I I'm a I'm a uh, dermatologist with training wheels on is kind of how I see it here. I have six okay. more months before before they can give me a final examination. And it's sort of an in-person, two dermatologists come down and spend a day with me and kind of make sure that I'm not insane or doing anything crazy. <laughs> and if I pass that, then I can be a full-fledged dermatologist in this country. Very cool. It's so... essentially their, for, their version of board certification. They don't have a boards that does it. They just have a, a national body that kind of oversees it. Wow. That's so interesting. Um, and are, are you the only American citizen physician there? No, there are a few of them. Uh, they, they, it's very easy to move out of the public system and into private once you're a full dermatologist. And it's much easier when, just like in the U.S. system, you can stay in academics and you can make good money or you can move into private and make even better money. And mm. so a lot, of the, a lot of the people that come over here do their time in the public system until they become fully licensed. And then they, then they switch over to private dermatology where they can make a whole lot more. Mm, very cool. Um, well... Before we transition into kind of the next part of the interview, yeah, um, is there anything else that you would like to kind of share? What am I missing about New Zealand dermatology? I think one of the coolest things that we get here is that we get all the benefits of being in a big training program in the U.S. with much more collegiality. So one of the interesting things that I've seen. I just went and presented at the National Dermatology Meeting here, and um, they they are required to attend that national meeting four out of every five years to maintain their license. And I love that because 
then you are with your colleagues. That's where you all meet up. Where in the U.S., I would say maybe 10, 15% of our academic department would ever go to the, the national meeting. And so you don't really, you don't really get together and, and have that collegiality, see people that you want to connect with because they don't take the time to go to the, the meetings. So I do kind of love that about how they, how they require their, their dermatologists to actually support their national meeting. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it just sounds like they're, they're doing a lot of things right over there. And um, hopefully you can come back and, and bring some of that to us. If not, uh, New yeah. Zealand sounds amazing. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of transitioning into, I know like for a long time you were at the university of Utah and had the chance to review, um, student applications to, uh, complete residency in dermatology at the university of Utah. Um, and I was just curious as, um, you reviewed those and, and examined uh, and interviewed applicants, what, what advice would you have for um, people applying to dermatology? So that is a very common question. It's a very important question because dermatology is so hard to get into the way that uh, I will tell you, honestly, it is a little bit of luck just to get into dermatology. Mm -hmm. So there is no formula that just gets you in. I yeah. really discourage you from looking on the Reddit boards and things like that as an applicant, yeah. because you are getting posts from people who know slightly more, if not less than you do. And they are speaking like they are speaking the gospel truth. And it just scares the heck out of applicants when they say, well, I saw that you have to do this and this. And I'm like, you heard it from someone who's applying this year as well. They they don't know any more than you do. So mm -hmm. I really discourage people looking on those boards because it doesn't make you feel good about yourself. It makes you feel like you're not going to get in. Um, I did have a colleague who interviewed the same year I did. And he had 25 interviews for dermatology and he did not get in. So wow. I want people to know that there is no magical formula where you just say, well, if I just get this many interviews, then I will get in. Or if I do this and this, I will get in. What I will tell you is that there are three main pathways that I've seen people get in. The first pathway is the most straightforward pathway, and it's just to be a rock star clinically. So you do everything possible. You ace all of your rotations. You score very well on your step twos. You um, you um, get AOA. You do all of that. Check all those boxes to say, I am essentially the best in my medical school. That's mm -hmm. one path. I did not go that path. I was a very average student in medical school. And it's very hard to recognize that it's near impossible to be a rock star in medical school because you're with a whole bunch of very bright people. Mm -hmm. And um, it's hard to shine when everyone's trying to shine. Um, yes. <laughs> the second, the second pathway is kind of like the, the community type pathway. 
So it's sort of a service pathway. Some people do it by doing fellowships at certain programs during their medical school training or right after it, they delay their um, match and they do a year of, of kind of a clinical trials or a research fellowship. Um, some students do it by really putting a lot of energy into doing amazing things, starting a nonprofit, organizing a free skin check clinic for, for indigent populations. Like I've seen people get in with just trying to do their part to change the world for the better. So they're not mm -hmm. the most academically oriented. They don't have a lot of research, but they did amazing service type opportunities. And then the third pathway, which is the pathway that I went in on was the research pathway. If you are really into research, you have to actually do research. You can't just publish a couple of case reports and then say, I love research because you're dealing with interviewers who are very smart people. And they say, you're not really showing me that you love research when you have two case reports and one of them you're a middle author on. Like you're not really doing a <laughs> yeah. lot to, to sell me that you're doing a lot of research. Um, so I did not honor a single rotation in all of medical school. I did not get AOA. I was, I, I barely got over the cut points for step one and step two to even be looked at by dermatology programs back when they had cut points. I think most of them have gone away from that. Mm -hmm. um, but what I had was I had 25 papers when I applied and so when I said, I want to do research, they said, okay, he knows how to do research. He's got all these publications. I'm not telling you, you have to get all those publications. I'm just saying, if you want to go the research path, you actually have to help out on multiple projects, do several things, and then ideally do projects that are interesting enough that they get into people's journal clubs. So I had done a project with two other med students. There were three of us that were in the same group and we worked on each other's projects. So we got three times the amount of publications and mm -hmm. we kind of became the, the head student for our project and then had each other helping for chart reviews or whatever help we needed. Um, but one of my main papers during med school for dermatology was looking at who's at the highest risk of getting it. Take that back. Who finds the melanomas and what, what uh, factors are related to who finds the melanomas? Are they, are they brought in by the patient or are, does the doctor find them on a skin check? And so what we found is that if you were female and under 50, you are bringing in your melanomas to the doctor, meaning you say, I don't like this spot. The doctor biopsies it and it's a melanoma. If you are male and over 50, uniformly, the doctor was finding those pretty much. Mm -hmm. So what our argument was is young people do not need to do skin checks near as much as older men because older men are not looking at their body near as much as younger people are. 
And so they're not recognizing changing moles or, or concerning lesions. Um, fortunately, that paper hit JAD the month before I did my interviews. And so everywhere I interviewed, I, they asked me to tell them about a project I had done. And I mentioned that one and they said, yeah, we just reviewed that in our journal club. That was a good paper. And so <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would help. That's the type of thing that you want to do if you are trying to go the research route. But I have not found any other avenue aside from nepotism. And nepotism is a very rare, difficult pathway because your parent has to be the chair of the department, which is a very niche group of people for dermatology. So it's either clinical or service or research, and you just have to excel in one of those. And if you really are not, it's third year or fourth year, and you're not excelling in one of those, you have to at least do stuff in as much of them as you can, and then just hope for the best. Yeah, I think that's lays a really good framework. And I've, I've never heard somebody put it that succinctly, but also very clearly, I love the the three frameworks. And I think it's valuable to hear that as a student, because some people may be really into the academics, some people may be really into um, research, some people may be more into serving in their community. And I think it kind of provides yeah. an avenue for everybody and it doesn't make anybody feel like they're getting gatekeep gate kept out of um a specialty that um welcomes diversity and, and welcomes different schools of thought. So I, I like that a lot. Um and what's really what's really important to recognize is that most of the uh, most amazing dermatologists at our department at the University of Utah did not get in their first time and they ended up doing fellowships, either clinical or research fellowships. And if you met them and worked with them as a student, you would say, how did you not get in? Like you are absolutely amazing. Yeah. So I just tell students like, do not give up because you didn't get in on the first round. There are avenues to get in. And some of the most amazing people that you meet in dermatology had to do the same thing. And yeah. so if you really want to do derm, you can get there. It just may take some extra time. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great perspective. I remember as a medical assistant, many of the residents were, uh, or maybe not many, but several of them were people who had completed a, a residency in mm -hmm. internal medicine, or maybe they had switched from pediatrics like halfway through. Um, so yeah, that's, that was an interesting thing to see and, and inspiring, honestly. Yeah. So, um, it is. anything else that you would add for, for students? I feel like that was, that was really, um, thorough and, and great, but just I, want to give you the opportunity. I think that's the main thing when I meet with students is trying to give them that framework so that they can go and have a little sit down with themselves and say, how do I want to pursue this? Because if you read, like people say, dabble in this, dabble in that, make sure you're on the derm interest group. I'm not going to discount that, but 
I don't think I've ever seen anyone get an interview because they were the president of their Durham interest group. Like, it's yeah. just one of those expectations. Like, yeah, you want to do Durham. Of course, you're going to be in the Durham interest group. So um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's it's helpful, but it's definitely not going to go be on the criteria for, oh, they did great service during their during their med school time. Because right. they served in the Durham interest group. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Like you, know. you really have to, you really have to set yourself apart. I I also applied to far fewer programs, and I think that was an advantage for me because I actually put thought and wrote individual paragraphs for each of my personal statements because I only applied to thirty programs, hmm. and so I individualized each of my personal statements. And um, this will be honest of how ridiculously uh, coincidental your interviews will be. The person who happened to get my um, application at the University of Utah, I was the first person that she had ever seen her name in a personal statement. I said, oh, and I would love to work with so-and-so. Um and she happened to be one of our 40 faculty that happened to look at that application. Because if one of the other faculty had looked at it, they would have said, well, they didn't mention me. Like, But because I happened to be with her and in her pile and I had mentioned her name, she's like, I want to interview someone that took the time to say that they want to work with me. So that's the type of ridiculousness that you're dealing with. So you can't beat yourself up if things aren't going as ideally as you want them to during the application season, because you never know what it is that interested that person to pick you for the interviews. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that. I've never heard anybody say that. And so um, I'm sure it's yeah. depressing. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. you think it's all on your qualifications, but you know, sometimes it's just not. It's yeah. it's just luck of the draw. Yeah. It's... And so I think that's that was helpful because each of those 30 programs, I was writing a paragraph on who I would want to work with at those programs and why I liked that program. And so out of those 30, I ended up getting 12 interviews, which I think was pretty reasonable for, for how many I applied to. But I, I do think it really came down to putting more energy into where I wanted to go rather than just doing the standard apply to 120 programs and cross your fingers. Yeah. I think I love the focused approach. I mean, I feel like that's what I'm that's what I'm hearing is like, you know, choose one of these three tracks or or choose all three and be focused about it. Be focused about who you apply to. And and so I think that's great advice. Um, transitioning to our kind of last topic, um, which yeah. I, I love this, that this is a part of our, our episode today um, is your website. Um which you oh, recently yes. shared with me. So it's medicalsecrets.com, right? Yes. Okay. And it uh, is now. I, I got the domain. So it is <laughs> medicalsecrets.com now. Um so uh three years ago, I kept getting increasingly uh, we talked about this earlier, how disgruntled I get with 
the U.S. health system, but I was getting increasingly frustrated with patients coming in, especially patients without insurance who ended up paying $300 to come see a dermatologist. And it would be for something like really bad dandruff. And mm. what I would do is explain, here's how you use the right over-the-counter products appropriately, and this will clear up your dandruff. And I just saw so much frustration. Like I just spent $300 to go be told that I could get this fixed with a $10 shampoo that I just didn't know how to use right. And mm. so that was sort of the, the impetus for the website is a few years ago, I started in my free time, I started uh, posting how you actually manage common skin conditions with over-the-counter products. Instead of going on TikTok and hearing about a 20-step regimen that you have to do for acne, like, yeah. here's what you should do for acne. Here's the best products that are available over the counter. And then I have this nice paragraph at the bottom of every single one of those pages that says, if this is not working, over the counter is not going to suffice. You need to go see a dermatologist. And what I'm trying to do is give people practical information and then the next steps rather than saying, well, that didn't work. So I will try some other $300 regimen and see if that works. And that frustrated me so much that um, I developed this website. And so hopefully it's helpful to people. A lot of my general colleagues love it because the dermatology colleagues, they're like, yeah, we already know that information. But my mm -hmm. my colleagues who are interns or residents and they'll have friends say, oh, what do I do for warts? What do I do for a, a good skincare routine? Like I have pages on all of these that they can say, oh, this is very helpful. This is a useful, practical tool for us. Yeah, it's super helpful. I I looked at it the other day and um, shared it with my family and it's really easy to navigate. Um, and it's also got a link to Dr. Seacrest social. So you can see his, his Instagram, yes. which is great. Um, <laughs> see what it's a like. weird hodgepodge of my family experiences <laughs> in New Zealand and medical <laughs> secrets. So you just hey. sort of get whatever flavor comes that day when I post. something. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all trying to live, live through you in New Zealand, but uh, no, I love the, like, I mean, I, it it brought back some good memories with the I love your skincare routine, super simple with with the Vaseline before bed. Um, yes. and uh, my brother who's like forty is is now doing that. Um, which which makes me laugh a little bit, but um, it's amazing. <laughs> but it does work, and so what I love about it is like my daughter will get really bad dandruff. And that's how she fixed her dandruff. I didn't use any fancy prescriptions. My wife and my daughter used that simple skincare routine. It's not like because I'm a dermatologist, they use the good stuff. And I'm just telling patients to use this stuff uh, instead. Like I'm giving you practical advice that I actually would do. So it's not, it's not kind of half-hearted advice or or less than type of advice, like, oh, well, that's not what 
a dermatologist would do, but I guess we can try it. So I love it. Well, Dr. Seacrest, I, I appreciate it so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to cover in regards to your website or just anything else that you think students would find helpful? I think that's it. I think hopefully that hopefully this information was helpful. Oh, I think it's very helpful. And I think, you know, you're you're a very inspiring physician and you're you're also hilarious. So <laughs> that makes it that that'll make it fun for people. So I, I love your passion awesome. for providing um care at an affordable cost and and I think this will be really unique for everybody. So thank you so much. No problem. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the DIGA podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to dermintrustpod at gmail.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.